Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. And we're continuing in this series that we've called Encounters with Jesus. And throughout the series, we're looking at five different individuals in the Gospels who had this face-to-face, life-changing encounter with Jesus and figuring out what that has to say to us about our relationship with God and how we can grow deeper with Him. This morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, the first 10 verses and the story of Zacchaeus. And it reads like this. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. And there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he'd become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was just too short to see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree that was sitting beside the road because he knew Jesus was going to pass his way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, which would have totally freaked me out. He said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. The Bible says that Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house with great excitement and joy. But the people, they were displeased. They grumbled and said, he's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before Jesus and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation's come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Uh, Every time I read this story, I am struck with just how unusual it is. It's not every day that you see one of the city's most prominent and influential and wealthiest people climb up a tree just to get a glimpse of a teacher who's coming by. Why did Zacchaeus want to see Jesus so badly? What was it that drove him (laughs) to to gather up, yeah, drove him up a tree, Um, caused him to gather up his toga? And on his chubby little legs, as I picture it, climb up that tree. Maybe it was curiosity. I mean, certainly Jesus' reputation as a phenomenal teacher, a miracle worker, ran ahead of him. Maybe he had heard that Jesus was this controversial teacher, which he was. Maybe curiosity motivated Zacchaeus. But I don't think that was enough to drive him up a tree. His behavior was hardly dignified for a man of his stature. So I think there was something else burning deep inside of Zacchaeus that day. Something within him that desperately hoped that seeing Jesus would bring about the change that he wanted in his life. Oh my gosh. After a song like that, there's only one thing to do. I mean, that's just say, go Cubs, go. Let's pray and go home, right? That's church. If you're, yeah, they're beyond prayer. Um, If you're a Sox fan, you need prayer. Um, Now, I have read this story of Zacchaeus hundreds of times in my life. 
I grew up learning the story of Zacchaeus mostly from that song that we used to teach kids in Sunday school. Anybody remember that song? Zacchaeus was a... Thank you. You actually did better than first service. The coffee helped. Yeah, and that song taught me the story, and it also made me curious because of the wording if Zacchaeus was from Ireland, right? Some of you will get that later. Uh, He's a wee little man. Now, I don't do a great Irish accent, so I'm not going to try. But I read this story as an adult, and it's just impossible for me to ignore the angst in his heart. His actions are beyond social protocol. They're so far extreme for a man of his wealth and position. There had to be this dissonance in his heart over who he was and how his life was going and what he had always dreamed it would be. And we've all been there, right? We've felt that discontent in our heart. We have really good intentions about making change, about breaking some kind of an addictive pattern in our life, whether it's drinking or overspending or overworking. We struggle to break free sometimes from drives in our lives that cause behavior we don't like. We, we want to control people. We want to criticize people. And we want to change that. Sometimes our discontent is driven by something that's much more positive. We take a look at our life and we go, I want to do something that has more meaning has more value, is going to make a difference in this world, something that's going to last beyond the grave. And we have that same kind of discontent in our relationship with God. We long to be more. We long to do more for Him. And whatever the discontent is caused by, we struggle because we just can't seem to get to that point of change. We feel stuck like Zacchaeus. If you've ever attempted a deep and lasting change in your life, then you know that Zacchaeus was up for a daunting task. The crowd hemmed him in with their opinions of him. The crowd clearly knew who he was before they ever met him and what he was. He was a liar, a cheat, a fraud, a thief. There's all kinds of opinions they pinned to tax collectors in Zacchaeus' day. In fact, if you did a public opinion poll, they would rank right there with murderers and thieves and extortionists. Tax collectors' common opinion was they were so evil, so corrupt, that the odds are stacked against them ever changing. So not only was Zacchaeus, though, hemmed in by people's perceptions of him, he was hemmed in by his own personal history. Could he really change? I mean... Nobody believed he could. He was rich. He was powerful. That has its own addiction for some of us. And he got into that place by defrauding people, so many people, that if he ever tried to make restitution, he wouldn't know where to begin. And if he did make restitution, would he still be able to live the lifestyle he'd grown accustomed to? Would the people he worked with just think he'd lost his edge? took a lot of courage to admit that kind of an identity crisis, to admit there's this disconnect between who I've become and who I really want to be. But owning that disconnect, owning our brokenness, is the first step to making real and lasting change in our lives. We talked 
some this week about this in my men's group, and I shared with them that I struggle with this. I've had a ringside seat to watching the men in my extended family as they age. I watched some of them grow greedy, self-centered. I watched some of them even become abusive to the people who love them. I've watched a lot of them just simply walk away from God. And so I don't want any of that to be true for me. I don't want that to become my identity. And that discontent forces me to face that tough question. Who am I becoming? I mean, I think about that more these days than I ever have in my life. Am I happy with the trend lines of my life? Are my beliefs and behaviors shaping me into the person that I want to be in my 70s, in my 80s, in my next week? And that question, who am I becoming, always brings me back to some other words of Jesus in Luke, where he says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks whatever the heart is full of. So in reality, what I have, what Zacchaeus had, what you may have, is not a behavior problem. It's a heart problem. For years, Zacchaeus had filled his heart with greed, with lies, with extortion, and it was no longer simply something he did. It was who he was. It's how the crowd saw him. It's how he saw himself. And it controlled him. And it made him miserable enough to risk public embarrassment just to get close to Jesus. And once he did, it's quite possible he got more out of that exchange than he ever bargained for. Somewhere... In the middle of this dinner party, the crowd started to grumble. And I find it ironic that they say he's gone to be the friend and have dinner with a notorious sinner. Because in truth, outside of Christ, that's what we all are, right? Somewhere in the middle of hosting this dinner for Jesus, Zacchaeus' life was forever changed. And it showed it showed in a stunning announcement that he made to anyone who could hear. When he said, I'm going to give away half of what I own to the poor. <laughs> and there had to be this thing in his head that said, I know I've cheated people, so if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to give them back four times what I cheated them out of. It's an amazing turn in the story that nobody could have expected from Zacchaeus. Because tax collectors didn't change. They weren't generous by nature. They did not return money they didn't owe, and if they owed money, they only gave back what the law required. So what happened here? What happened to Zacchaeus over dinner? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's one of the few stories that I go, I wish I knew the dialogue. Jesus may have done what he typically did in those settings and, and taken that opportunity to teach the crowd. Jesus may have what he did in other settings, ignored the crowd, and just simply talked straight to Zacchaeus, one-on-one. On one. We don't know. But it's pretty clear something new now fills Zacchaeus' heart. And while his actions probably didn't do a whole lot to sway public opinion of him, Zacchaeus knew he was different. Jesus knew he was different. 
Jesus confirmed he was different when he said, salvation's come to this home today, to this man. He's changed. Jesus saw him for what he was. So let me ask you, what do you think Jesus sees when he looks at you? Clear out the voices in your head. Clear out thinking about what friends or family or enemies even say about you. Zero in on the question, what does Jesus see when he looks at you and me? Our human tendency is to focus, I think, when that question comes, to focus on our failings, to focus on where we've not lived up to our profession of faith. We'll even say things like this, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, right in that statement, you're telling people what you think Jesus sees when he looks at you. You're telling people what your identity is. I am a sinner. And I didn't realize how harmful that simple statement could be, that perspective could be, in our lives until a few years ago. I was working through a book that's now become one of my favorites. I recommend it to everybody that I can. And the author in that book made this matter-of-fact statement. Jesus' followers are never referred to as sinners. Not once in all the New Testament. I can't begin to tell you how much that rattled me. How it flew in the face of everything that I had read and been taught for decades. The line of thinking seemed wrong, but it was so compelling. I was so curious that I literally cleared my calendar for the rest of the morning and I sat for three hours digging through the entire New Testament. Unless you think I'm brighter than I am, I did it with a search engine, okay? I looked up every single reference in the New Testament to the word sin. All the variations, sinner, sinful, sinless. Every word that had sin in it. What I was doing was I was searching for the few verses that would prove the author wrong. What I discovered in the end is he's absolutely right. God calls us lots of things. Jesus calls us lots of things. The writers of the New Testament call us lots of things after we've accepted Jesus. All of them are endearing terms. You are his beloved child. He even goes as far in the New Testament, God does to identify us as saints. I don't know that I've ever felt like a saint, but that's what God calls us. All of these terms are used for us in the New Testament, but not once is the derogatory term sinner applied to someone who is following Jesus. We're no longer a sinner once we accept Jesus. The longer I thought about it, the more sense it made to me. And it's not just semantics. If I believe something, it impacts my behavior. So if I believe I'm a sinner, I'm going to sin. It'll be my identity. Shouldn't cause this disconnect, this dissonance in my soul when I sin, right? Because I'm a sinner. 
I mean, to feel awkward, to feel bad about that, to be troubled by it would be like an apple tree being troubled because its branches are producing apples. It's simply doing what's in its nature. But we're not sinners. God has erased our old identity. He gives us a brand new identity in Christ. Romans puts it this way. We know, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. Hear that. Let that sink deeply into you. None of us have an old sinful self living in us. It's dead. Gone. And we need to understand that because it was done so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Jesus not only takes away our guilt by His crucifixion, Jesus crucifies our old sinful selves, our old identity, and the challenges for us to believe and live in our new identity in Him. I'm no longer a sinner. I am no longer a forgiven sinner. I am a brand new species. I'm a unique creation of God in whom Jesus lives. Now, I'll never be sinless, but that's okay. That's not my goal in life. And God's view of me is only through Jesus. I don't have to be sinless because the sinless Jesus lives inside of me. And that means that we're brought back into a loving relationship with God. That means that we are viewed as perfect because of what Jesus has done. And that's a radically different view of our life in Christ. So let me ask you again, who is it that Jesus sees when he looks in you? What's your identity? I think this is what he sees. You're a child of God. Jesus lives in you, and you are destined for heaven, infused with God's power and presence simply because of what Jesus has done for you. And the change that God desires in you is not simply to stop some harmful behavior. God desires a deeper life for you in Christ, a life that is full of warmness and power and joy. That's about as clear as I can make it. That's who we are in Christ. Zacchaeus' story demonstrates to us what's possible with God that we can change. We can live out of our new identity. I grew up on a farm. And I have massive amounts of allergies. So even though we were living on a farm... I just had settled on the fact that I would never be able to have a dog. I always wanted a dog. And so lo and behold, one day, this stray shows up at our house. We'd never seen this dog anywhere around us before. It just appeared out of nowhere. I expected my parents to pick it up and take it to the pound or try to drive it off, but they let it stay around for a while. And finally, they just said, yeah, this is our dog now. And I got to name the dog, not like by a choice, just by default, I named the dog. And I named the dog, maybe. Weirdest name I've ever heard for a dog. I was 12, okay? Don't judge me. 
my mom asked me, she said, why in the world should we call the dog maybe? And I said, well, pretty simple. She's a stray, right? She came to us on her own, right? Maybe she'll stay. Maybe she'll leave. And it stuck. Weirdest name for a dog ever. She was, through and through, a country dog. And they live differently than city dogs. Country dogs live in wide open spaces, have lots of room to roam. She had access to over 200 acres. She could go anywhere she wanted between what we owned and the neighbors owned. She could play in the pond. She could go down to the creek. She could eat anything she found. And she could fight with anything she found, which she did. And she often fought with skunks, which wasn't pretty. After a while, though, a country dog doesn't stray as much. A country dog just starts to stay in the same place day after day. They hang out close to their master. Country dogs have seen roaming free for what it is, and they're quite content to just stay close to their master. All four dogs we've had during our marriage are city dogs. And there's a big difference. City dogs live cooped up in a house, fenced up in a yard. They're pinned in. And as a result, city dogs have one goal in their life. Escape. Yeah, you're with me. If the door is open, left open just to crack, if there's a place they can dig under the fence and get out, they will. And then you do the shameful stuff that you do as the owner of a city dog. Been there, you know? You find yourself running down the street after your dog, screaming at the dog, not realizing that's just terrifying the dog and it's running. When you don't find them again by just walking, then you do the most shameful thing of all. You get in your car and you drive for miles, yelling the name of your dog out the window in hopes of catching a glimpse of the fugitive, don't you? And if you ever do manage to get close enough to the dog to think about bringing it back home, you're going to have to bribe that dog with a treat or you're going to have to lasso it with a leash to get it home so the whole thing can just start all over again. When we approach our life in Christ as a set of rules, restrictions, do's and don'ts, we're living like a city dog. We feel confined. We feel cramped. We do anything just to break free. When we understand our identity in Christ, what he offers us, we begin to live like a country dog. We can do whatever we choose. But we've been there. We've done that. We know better. And we know that our best life is found close to the master. The real problem with a city dog is that a city dog believes he's free. He has no idea he's lost. That somebody is searching desperately for him. When we live with a clear understanding and realization that we've already been found. That we have a new identity. That we have a new freedom. We'll stop chasing another life. And we'll begin to live in the life-changing power and love of God.